I am really excited to be here for week two for prayers that change the world. Um, I feel like this is a, a, such a bold title at every level, and I love it. Because we can get, at least for me, I can get very lazy in my prayer. And not just how the frequency by which I pray, but the expectation by which I have of it. And I want us to recalibrate the way we see this gift, this, this gift of God's grace called prayer. That, this, that the prayers that we pray this year are going to change the world. They're going to change us personally. They're going to change our church. They're going to change our city. They're going to change the world. That we are serving a living God who is inviting us into this gift of prayer. And I truly believe these four weeks are going to not just be messages, but invitations. Invocations to entering into a lifestyle, a momentum, an expectation where we, we're not just reading the Bible, but we're like, we're actually, this becomes a mirror that we're living into. That we're asking for God to give us the courage and the, the privilege of not just praying to him, but actually seeing God use our prayers to change the world. And I can't think of a better uh, text to consider regarding prayers that change the world than Nehemiah chapter 1. If you would just turn to the book of Nehemiah, um, my topic or the... What I've been asked to kind of guide us into is prayers that change kings. Prayers that, that change the fabric of society uh, at such a level that now a king's heart is going one direction, but because of our prayers, it goes a, a different direction. And, and I, 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 love, I love the book of Nehemiah because it enters us into this reality, but it does it in a very unique and kind of roundabout way. Um, what we're going to find is that Nehemiah chapter 1, you would think that he's going to pray about ways in which God needs to change uh, the Persian kingdom, that God needs to, to transform the way that people are operating with the Jewish people. But what we're going to find is that that's not what is going to take place at all, um, that, that, that God is going to use this man's uh, example of prayer that is going to start uh, internally and as a result of him now being driven to his knees, beginning with lament, lament leading to confession, and, and, and that being the foundation by which God changes the world through this, this cupbearer, this person who's a government employee. Nehemiah is a book that we're familiar with, but what we may not know is that uh, it is the final events, chronologically speaking, in the Old Testament. It is uh, written by a, a man um, who, his name literally means, my comfort is Yahweh. What we find is that this is a, a dude who is uh, living in, in Persia. King Artaxerxes is his boss. And he has uh, now looked back in the, the span of history and his people have been kicked out of their homeland for over 142 years. 586, they are driven uh, into Babylon. You know the story of Daniel. Um, and, and from Daniel, they're there for 70 years. And then King Cyrus, he enters into the fray. He, he, um, he takes over Babylon. And he gives people the opportunity, the option to go back to their homeland. Some do. Nehemiah doesn't. What, and so he comes back and he has been, uh, he's, he's lived 
uh, in this land, Persia. Uh, and so it's been over 140 years of captivity. It's been 140 years of confusion. It's been 140 years of God's people who have the opportunity to now rebuild the wall and they don't. And so as a result, it opens them up security-wise to be vandalized, to be, um, to be taken advantage of. Uh, they, they, uh, because of the fact that they have no walls, they have, they have no gates, that they are now, um, they're, they're a scourge. They're seen as useless, as hopeless. Here this man is a cupbearer. He's a cupbearer. He's doing his job, going about his life, and everything's going to change. What we find throughout the book is that he is a faithful servant of not only Yahweh and King Artaxerxes, but also the people that he leads. And what we find throughout this book, and, and I just want to give you a little bit of a character sketch of who this man was. That he, what we find is that he was a man of faith. He demonstrated by his wholehearted devotion to and, and trust in God. He was a man of action. Demonstrated by his realization of what needed to be done and his willingness to do whatever it takes to see the mission accomplished. He's a man of determination. Demonstrated by his unwillingness to let opposition deter him from fulfilling his, objection, his objectives. He's a man of triumph. Demonstrated by his success over both physical adversaries as well as material when it comes to the wall of Jerusalem. He's a man of confrontation. Demonstrated by his earnestness in confronting sin and wrongdoing. He's a man of convictions. Demonstrated by his unwillingness to tolerate evil all around him. He's a man of inspiration. Demonstrated by his ability to motivate others to serve God. He's a man of vision. Demonstrated by his focus on God's expectations rather than on man's limitations. And finally, he's a man of perseverance. Demonstrated by his ability to finish the task at hand. But most importantly, he's a man of prayer. He's a man of prayer. All, um, and what we find is the first seven chapters is his journal. And so he's, we're, 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 brought into, we're brought into the struggle. We're brought into the reality. We're brought into the fight. And at every fight... This man prays that when Nehemiah speaks to the king, he paused in chapter two and he prayed. In chapter four, he's reproached by his enemies. He pauses and he prays. Chapter six, his life is threatened. He pauses and he prays. Chapter six, again, he, his enemies threaten to attack. He prays. Chapter eight, when Nehemiah leads people in worship, he prays. And all of those prayers, though, they sit upon the steady and firm foundation of chapter one. And this is what I'd like to title this little talk as the prayer that God cannot resist. I know it's a little bombastic. I kind of like it. The prayer that God cannot resist. Nehemiah chapter one. This is what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, jack that up. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the, I think I messed that one up too. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who, have, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you command your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give your success to your servants here today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Chapter 2, verse 8. We'll end here. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would allow us to wade into the waters of this prayer. Lord, our desire, our desire is to come boldly to the throne of grace, but to do so in a way that allows for us to reflect your character and your nature, to become more like Jesus, that your hand may be upon your people. This is our prayer. This is our expectation. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, My wife and I, we celebrated our 20th anniversary uh, in December. And um, we, so we've got four kids. And when you've got four kids, that means you're usually most of the time, and then if you work, you know, for a nonprofit, you know, you don't have a ton of cash to go to really cool, like expensive places. And so um, we, that sounded kind of daunting and overwhelming. I'm sorry. That was depressing. Um, well, we, we've really wanted to, to go to kind of a, a, a cool spot that has a beach and that is out, out of the country. And so we went to Cancun. Um, and we went for seven days. We've never been anywhere away from our kids for a full seven days. And if you've got kids, you've got to do it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you go to Cancun. Just get away for seven days. Seven days is like the magical number. Um, and so we, we got away and we just happened to be, uh, we, got, we, we got access to um, a Hilton resort that had been open for less than a month. This is a, this is a pretty nice spot. Uh, in fact, it was a lot more opulent than I was expecting. Um, it had like maybe 10 restaurants that were pretty high end. Um, it was all access, whatever you want when it comes to, it just, you just go for it. And um, so we show up. 
And uh, they found out that we had our 20th anniversary, and so they gave us a little bit of an upgrade. They put us into a suite. Uh, in the suite happened to be a swim-up private pool. It was, I'm telling you, I mean, everything about this joint was, was just unreal. I mean, I, at the end of it, I'm like, no, not going back. I've got COVID. We're here. Staying here. Uh, it was everything about it. I mean, just from the service to the rooms to, I mean, it just was, was amazing. Uh, until we went to turn on the water. And we turned the faucet, and the water was sludge. It was probably the most disgusting thing that I, I, I was going to brush my teeth. And I, and I forgot, I'm in Cancun. You don't do anything with the water, no matter how opulent, how beautiful. I mean, just wait for the water to come out before you put your toothbrush in. Well, I didn't. And here comes the, the brownest... Um, most poisonous-looking water I'd ever seen. And I, the irony, though, that in, the, in a location that is exuding opulence at every level, the life source is undrinkable. And with Nehemiah, this is the situation that he is now staring at. He is staring at a people, God's people, that is opulent. They are, they have a legacy, a heritage, a future, an author of their identity, namely God. They are at the foundational stones of, of what God wants to build, and he is, he is involved. I mean, everything about the setup is beautiful at every level. The only problem is that everything that is coming out of this people it's poisonous water. Sin has marked this people at every level. In fact, they have failed. They failed in battle. They failed in their obedience. They failed in their faith. They refused to repent. And yet, all of their failures were interrelated. All of their failures had to do with the poisonous faucet of sin that was coming up out of them. And there's, there's no greater imagery, metaphor, to describe this group than broken down walls. This is a broken people. And here we have this, this man in Nehemiah going about his life. And what's fascinating, even the timing of this, that he... He's, he's known about this problem for over 140 years. But all of a sudden, he has a conversation with his brother who had just come out of Jerusalem. And this brother, he paints a picture for, him, for this man. And in a moment, in a moment, God uses this divine grace of pain to awaken Nehemiah at all of the right levels. And it's fascinating how God is committed to using pain as one of his primary resources in our life. I love what C.S. Lewis, I've used this many times, but this is such a great quote. Pain insists upon being attended to. 
God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is one of God's greatest gifts to his people. What we find is that pain is a burdening agent. Human tendency is to isolate and insulate from pain. I mean, we all have our, our um, Bose uh, noise-canceling headphones, right? I mean, my, I've got a pair, and at night, occasionally when I'm watching a movie, I put them on. My wife hates it. She hates it because when she tries to talk to me, I, I don't even know that she's there. I mean, I, like, there's something about these, these headphones that the world literally just shuts down. Everything disappears. And, and often what we can do is we can put headphones on our ears to insulate and isolate from the pain that is around us. And all of a sudden, God allows for pain to cross over the borders into our existence, take off the headphones, and all of a sudden we're staring at it. And that's what's happening when it comes to Nehemiah. Love this quote. You will never lighten a load until you feel the pressure in your own soul. And that's what's happening with Nehemiah. He's feeling this pain. It's a, it's a burdening agent. It's not only burdening, but it also, it's a moving agent. It awakens him. It drives him. He's ready. Like there's something that's jostling this man. But it's not just enough to have pain by itself. Pain has to have now a, a segue into, in, into allowing us to interact with God respectfully and interactionally. It's not just about having pain. Pain by itself, if we don't do something with it, will ooze out. And man, it'll, it's like a grenade. It goes off in us and it gives shrapnel to those around us. I mean, pain, if it's not processed, if it's not brought to the right places, it will destroy you and others. And so, so where, where does God want to take pain? And then how does that interact with Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah shows us exactly what to do with pain. I mean, he's, he, he, he introduces us, he, he brings us into this invitation of lamenting. See, our world has no idea what to do with pain or sadness, or hurt, or disappointment. No one knows what to do with it. So we numb ourselves in busyness and social media. We don't know what to do with it. And then the church doesn't, we, we're, we don't know what to do with lamenting. Because we're, we've been told, or we've, we tell ourselves, that faith means being positive. Pretending that the sadness doesn't exist. Or having spirit fingers all the time that goes, everything's good, everything's good. No, 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 no. But what if everything's not good? Like, what do we do with real pain? And then how... What, what is the platform by which God wants us to process that pain? Well, it's called lamenting. It's a powerful emotional discharge that reorients our hearts around the person and work of Jesus. In this amazing book, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, lamenting is defined as follows, a prayer of pain that leads to trust. Lamenting is the wailing of the heart before a God who hears, who listens, who responds to our cries. And when we lament, we fight discouragement. We fight despair. Like when, when we just have pain by itself, we're stewing in it. 
We're soaking in it. It's getting in our bones. But when we were invited by the scriptures through the spirit of God to drag that pain into the presence of God and lament. Lamenting isn't, it's not downgrading, downplaying, or even going from rated R to rated G with God. It's about being authentic. It's about being real. It's about being open. It's about gushing emotionally in front of a God who knows, who understands, and who is coming close. When we lament, we fight discouragement and despair. And when it comes to lament, it is the standard operating procedure or even the means of grace whereby God recycles our pain and brings both life and growth from it. Like he actually has a purpose for the pain, but he can't do anything if you don't bring it to him. If, and we bring our pain to everybody else. We bring our pain in regards to social media. We bring our pain when it comes to, to mouthing or, or at least exploding with our, our opinions and our frustrations. And we wonder, why are we so angry? Why are we ready to fight all the time? Why, why are we pointing fingers all the time to each other regarding the pain that is real in our own souls? Because, man, we, we're missing an invitation to lament. Lament is, is, is seen even in the life of Jesus. He, he embodies it. He, he explains and even walks it out right in front of us in Matthew 23, 37 and 38. Jesus, he laments over Israel and the Jews' rejection of his preaching and ministry. In Matthew 27, 46, as Jesus bears the weight of the sins of the world and shame, he quoted Psalms 22 as he cries out to the Father, as he's being crucified, he's lamenting. He is, he's showing us how it's done, but he doesn't. The best possible example regarding Jesus and lamenting is in John 11. It's amazing how he demonstrates lament most vividly at the death of Lazarus. Powerful sign of sympathy, sorrow over sin and death. And of grief for the pain it has caused his friend, Jesus enters into the suffering and sorrow and takes a moment to lament when he weeps. He weeps. But then, so beautifully, he, he laments, but then he acts. He is, he is entering into pain, but then he's also the answer to the pain. This is not a God, and he's showing us that, that I want you to, to step into this this very uncertain, even foggy space called lamenting, and I want you to just do what I do. He shows us how it's done. But then he also shows us that he has the power to now answer the pains that are in the human soul. Example of this for me is through the two topics, perversion and division. This is what I mean. Over the last 18 months, you, you, many of you know that I have been asked to represent our church in our city. And in the process of doing that, like Nehemiah, I have, my eyes have been opened. I have had the headphones on my ears for a long time in some areas. My eyes have been opened. One of the areas that it's been open to is sex trafficking. There's over a thousand massage parlors 
in Fairfax County uh, just alone. It's 10 within three miles of our church. Young girls placed there um, from upstate New, New York and, and are held without any hope of really getting out. I didn't know that. I was unaware of that. Perversion in our city broke me. Topic of division. So many spaces where division has reigned and ruled. Division racially, in the church, politically, but especially in the family. This is what I mean. I discovered that there's over 500 children who are waiting for foster care in our county, Fairfax County alone. I'm not saying this to shame. I'm just saying this. This is this is this is what it looked like for me to lament, to hear realities that I didn't know, but I've been around. I've chosen to dismiss myself from and the grace of God that leads us into brokenness, to real brokenness. And my question to you is, where are the places that God wants to lead you into lamenting? Those places where you may have your earphones on and yet you know that it's, it's almost like God's starting to pull it, the curtain back. He's, he's, he's bringing you close to pain that you don't understand and you don't know what to do with. And yet, could it be that that is God's grace of allowing pain so that he wants to lead you into lamenting? And so as, as, I, as I'm going through this message, what I want to do is I just want to pause. And I, I want to lead us into a prayer of lamenting. I want us, this is a series on prayer, so let's pray. Let's pray and ask for God to open up our eyes to allow us to be, to, be, to be okay with the pain. To work with the Father as he brings pain to, to a proximity that we are not ready for. I, I, I'm, I'll tell you, um, racially over the last 18 months, I've been brought close to the pain. Very similar to what you have in Nehemiah, 140 years he's been around it and he's missed it and all of a sudden in a moment he's aware of it. I felt like that racially for me. I'd been around the pain and I'd, I'd missed it. I'd missed it. And over the last 18 months, my eyes have been open. Where has God opened your eyes? Where, how does he want to lead you into places of lament? Lord Jesus, we pause and we we ask for you to break our hearts for what is breaking yours. Will you, will you give us the courage to not resist the pain, to not run away from the pain, but knowing that you want to use the pain for a unique purpose. You want to use us to answer places of pain. You want us to be the solutions of pain. But God, you don't want us to sit in this pain and then allow it to ooze out of us. You want us to process it with you. And so we do that. We take our pain and we take it to you. I'm just going to pause. I'm just going to let you. I'm just going to let you pray to your father.
regarding this topic of lament. Lord, will you give us the privilege of participating and partaking of the sweet communion of lament this year. Allow us to discover what this needs to be in our own life. Allow it to be a practice. In your name we pray. Amen. So he goes, the first four verses is all about this this waiting into lament. But then he pivots in verses five to seven. And so the first section is, is beautiful because the whole focus is broken walls lead to broken hearts. But then he, he changes. He, all of a sudden, he springs up out of the sadness and broken walls. Now, out of the broken walls come wide open hearts. And he, he, and he brings us into this idea of partaking in the practice of confession. Where there is lamenting comes now the opportunity and invitation for repentance and confession. I love this. He, he seeds the ground with lamenting and, and out of the ground of lamenting, he's, he's, he's tilling the ground. And guess what? The seeds where life change, where citywide change occurs is through confession. The gift of confession. Now I know when we say confession, see, this is why these are prayers that change the world because these are prayers that we're scared to pray. This is not fun to, like, to have this type of, of understanding and, and to even live as a lifestyle where our life is built on lamenting. That now, that, 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 that praying is emotional. It's, God is working on our hearts and he's opening us up to new things and we don't like that. And then leading us into the space of, of confessing. And this is the foundation that national renewal is built on. And, and what, what we find is, is that he begins by grounding any hope for change and he links it to God's covenantal, merciful, and everlasting love as the link to personal national renewal. This is, this is what's happening. If you've ever been repelling, you, you are now connected to something bigger and then you are now stepping into the unknown. Something large, something immovable, something that is firm, that will not budge, is holding you, and now is leading you to now step into the unknown. What Nehemiah is doing is he's linking himself to God's covenantal promise, to the fact that God is an everlasting God, that what is going to give him the courage and the power to be able to confess is not him stirring himself up, but now linking himself to God, you are a covenant-keeping God. You're an everlasting God. You are a God who is bigger than me, and you have seen this from the very beginning. As Pastor Sean was talking about last week, the sovereignty of God is at work in Nehemiah's existence, and this gives him the courage to begin to wade into the unknown. But he didn't learn it by himself. This is exactly what David prays in Psalms 51. He's got the sin of Bathsheba. This is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Same language as what we just read. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's depending upon God's steadfast love. He's linking himself to that. And he's stepping into the unknown. For I know, that word is yada, my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Well, that word know uh, is this Hebrew word that is just, I mean, if you geek out on stuff, this is like a three-dimensional word that, that has to do with confession. And it's the same word that Nehemiah uses in verse 7 and 8. What this word actually means, it has three meanings. One is to confess one's sin. It's, you know, confessing to God in regards to what you've done. The second is confessing that God is just in his judgment. The third is praising God, confessing that God is God. Side note, this word also has this Hebrew picture of throwing, casting. So it's almost like what Nehemiah is doing is he's helping us realize that this process of confessing is taking what we have held on tightly, namely our sin, and we're throwing it. But as we throw it, we are acknowledging that we have now violated a just God, but that that very same God is now loving us in spite of that. It's all three things working at the same time. It is confessing that we're sinful. It's confessing that he's just. And it's confessing that he is this God. He's God. That he's got us. He's overseeing our life. This is what, it's all, in all three senses, one, in agreement with, with, uh, uh, one is in agreement with the Lord and the Lord's perspective on reality. This is, this is what it looks like for us to confess. It's acknowledging our sin. It's acknowledging that we've violated a just God. But then at the same time, it's acknowledging, God, I'm confessing that you're God. I'm confessing that. Even though it's easy to focus on the confessing what I've done because, man, it just feels so big. It feels so daunting and it feels so disconnecting to the God that we serve. And yet what Nehemiah, what this word is trying to invite us into is this lifestyle of confessing where we're wading into the unknown, linked to a covenant-keeping God. And what he does, though, is this is what I love, is that he doesn't... See, it's easy when we talk about confessing, when we talk about the word, we, it's easy to take it like a, a spotlight and we point it at everybody else. What Nehemiah shows us is that he confesses for what he's done personally. He steps into the MRI machine himself and he says... What's wrong with me? He allows for God's presence and his word. He, he acknowledges that any lamenting that he's doing about a wall, the result of that wall is sin. And he acknowledges that sin is in me. He doesn't focus on what somebody else has or has not done. He expects that at the base of the problem is me. It's me. And he details his confession. He says, here's how we failed you, God. We failed you with commandments. It refers to God's commands. We've, we failed you when it comes to statutes, laws, or regulations, even moral imperatives. And we failed you when it comes to ordinances. 
legal rulings. What he's saying, they have failed spiritually, morally, and legally. They had failed at every level. And what Nehemiah is saying, he's saying not just we have done it, I've done it. I failed. God, I'm the problem. Before he is looking at fixing the problem of the walls, he asks for God to fix the problem of him. This is, I'm telling you, this is a game changer. This is a game changer because what this does, let me, let me just go back to what I was talking about at the beginning of perversion and division. God opened my eyes in these two areas. God, God broke me. I lamented. But then I realized there's perversion in me. Thoughts, motivations, passions, appetites. That perversion doesn't start three miles down the road. That perversion starts with me. That perversion is in me. That division that I hate so much that drives me just crazy to see division at every level of our society. And yet I'm, an, I'm a divided man with divided loves. This has to start with us. Has to, the prayers of what God, he's drawn to is, is prayers that, that enter into pain, but then acknowledge that at the heart of the pain is sin and that sin it's, it lives in me. What are the two, what are the things that you need to, to courageously but offensively, you need to begin to confess? What are the areas that you know God is he's beginning to unpack, to put a light on? So I, I want to just pause. And I want us to just pray together. And I want, us, I want us to have the courage to confess. To acknowledge the sin that, that is in, that is in you, but then at the same time to acknowledge, to acknowledge the sin, to acknowledge God's just, his just character, and to acknowledge that God, you are a God who wants to now bring healing not only to me personally, but through me to heal what's around me. Now I'm telling you, this is where it begins. This is where life change, citywide change, churchwide change, it starts with the gift of confession. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would even right now, that you would lead us, that you would lead us to the gift and the grace of confession. I'm just going to pause wherever you are. Just begin to, to drag things to the Father. Own your sin. Lord, as uncomfortable as this moment is, it is so right. It's so right. As we're stumbling over words, as we're stumbling over emotions, as we're, as we're almost filtering out things that Surely that's not in me. Lord, I thank you for these moments of uncomfortableness that you are you're leading us into. I, I'm just so thankful, God, that you love us enough to help us as we confess. God, lamenting and confession, this is the scaffold. 
This is the building blocks. Lord, we don't resist it. We embrace it. In your name we pray. Amen. Final point, three minutes, if you give me about three to five minutes. From broken walls to steadfast servants. Partaking in the practice of scriptural declaration. So what's happening? The beginning of the chapter, his focus is all about walls. But at the end of the chapter, if, if, you, just, if you look at it, I love verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant. I love this. He takes the Bible and he reads it back to the author. He preaches. He's not just reading through the Bible. He's praying through this book. He, he preaches the Bible back to the Father. And he said, the way by which you are going to restore your people is through your promises. And just in case you forgot them, God, here they are. This is what Nehemiah is doing. He is, he is building his, before he builds the wall, he's got to be built on the book. He's got to be built on the book. He's got to be built on who God has created us to be according to his word. What I love about this is that out of lamenting and confession, it can, comes the scaffolding needed for biblical declaration. And as he's professing, as he's declaring this, what you'll notice in the verses 8 to 11, he says, servants, five times. That where there is biblical declaration comes divine identity. That he finally, he realizes, we're your servants. We're your servants. We're your people. That you have, you, you're having mercy on us because we are lamenting, we are confessing, and now we're at a space where you are going to use us. And, and I, I love this whole idea that prayer for Nehemiah wasn't disconnected from him now being launched into activity. That he's praying for an answer and all along he's the answer. He's, he's the answer. And at the end of the chapter, he finally acknowledges he's praying biblical declarations. He's praying declarations of identity that this is who you've created us to be. But then in that comes now a submission and a surrender that at the beginning was the walls burning. At the end is the answer to those walls is me. Do you realize that you might be the answer? the problems that you are, man, you're crying out. Your heart is lamenting over. For me, it was, it was <laughs> division, it was perversion. But guess, guess what? Over the course of the last 18 months, as I've navigated this series, this, this road of lamenting and, and acknowledgement and confession, like we were able to go to 45 different Keep this just between us. We've been able to go to 45 massage parlors in our area with, the, with GCK. We knock on doors. We give care packages and we pray for the mamasans there. Like this is, and, and we, we can't put that up on a Grace Loves update because that's awkward. Between us, like this is, this is the, the thing that broke me, we became the answer of. Uh, this whole being haunted by these 500 kids, heartbroken, 
over the last 18 months, we've launched now a, this, a, an initiative in regards to foster care where we're beginning to, to open up our arms and bring families in and help now deploy as well as equip and, uh, and fund families who want to foster care. I mean, the problem that we saw at the beginning, what was driving my heart just to place of despair, God's allowed for us to be the answer to that. This is what it looks like for a king's heart to change. Changes through, through a prayer that God cannot ignore. He can't ignore this. Believe me, 75% of us will walk away from this and we will, be out, we will feel outmatched. I'm just begging you, don't be outmatched by this. Dig into this book. Dig into Nehemiah chapter 1 because here's how it ends. I read it, but I'm going to read it again. Verse 9, verse 8 of chapter 2. And the king granted me what I asked. Everything that he needed, he got. And oh, by the way, they fixed the wall in 52 days. But, he, but that wasn't the primary focus of his attention. We got what we asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the goal. This is the invitation. This is what the result is as we become a people of prayer. It's God's hand upon us. Lord Jesus, we, we just pause and we, we say that we're the answer. You are calling us to be the answer in our city. You're calling us to be the answer in our families. You're calling us to be the answer as, as, even as state employees who are working for the government, many of which sit in this room working for the government, and they're Nehemiahs. They're sticking Nehemiahs. They've been called to step into this place of serving the king of our land, doing it with a purpose that is now divine, where their eyes are opened, they're awakened to the invitation that you want to give to us. And Lord Jesus, we just surrender and we say we're yours. We're yours. We want to take your word and we want to now contend for it and remind you of it. We want to be a people who now are reminded of our identity that we're servants of the almighty God. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're going to cause us to be an answer in our city. In your name we pray. Amen. Church, get into this series. This is going to be a, a transformative moment for us as a church to begin to pray prayers with boldness, with new confidence, with a clarion call that comes from our people that God, he's drawn to and he has to respond to. I love you.